I'm Sean Kennedy, and this is Backstage at the Enharmonic. My guest today is famed percussionist and composer, Anthony J. Cerrone. We talk about Mr. Cerrone's upbringing in New Jersey, his acceptance to Juilliard, and ultimately him getting his job with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. We also explore the inspiration and the method by which he composed his landmark book, Portraits in Rhythm. Portraits in Rhythm are 50 etudes for solo snare drum. For anyone who has ever studied percussion, this book has been a challenge and an inspiration. We also discuss what it was like in the section at the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra during his tenure, the audition process for becoming a classical percussionist in a major symphony orchestra, never one to remain still. He also discusses a lot of his new projects that are coming out. I hope you enjoy this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic, featuring Anthony J. Cerrone. Hear me? Hey, I got you. Can you hear me? There we go. Yep. Hey, thanks so much, man. Yeah, it's pretty easy to get on. Followed a few instructions there. Yeah. <laughs> I have all my questions written out. So, you know, it's kind of like a, a, a set list in a jazz gig, though. So if we get go somewhere else, that's fine. Sounds great. Love to talk about percussion. Yeah, right on. Okay. So you, <laughs> you're, you're from Jersey originally, right? Yes. Nice. Okay. Uh, now, when you were uh, coming up, uh, what was the thing that got you involved with music as a young person? Well, the story goes, uh, my mother thought I should play an instrument. Nobody in my family played instruments. She had 11 brothers and sisters. Maybe there was an accordion player in there or two, but yeah. not really. So she took me to a music studio and she says, what do you want to play? And I ran over to the drum set. <laughs> and that was the story. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that was it. I ran to the drum set. So she found me a drum set teacher. Mm -hmm. and, and I got a rubber pad, and I was seven years old, and I started learning to play the drums on my little rubber pad. Wow. And yeah. the rest is history, I guess they say, you know? Well, you know, I kept going through school, uh, grade school, and then I got into bands. Of course, we all had bands in school those days. And uh, kept getting encouraged, had different teachers uh, along the way. And uh, But the uh, other, other, I would say, milestone, you know, when you get these breaks, I was a junior in high school. And a new band director we had is in Lyndhurst High School. And um, my band director said, I have this friend who just got out of the, the Marine band or the Army band, and he's a drummer, and he wants to get some more students. So he told me about him. So you should, you should take lessons from him. So I did. Well, what I didn't know about him uh, is that he was a, a Juilliard graduate. So what did he do as a junior in high school? He was preparing me to go to Juilliard, which I knew nothing about. Wow. So, you know, and then I, I auditioned, then I got in a course and studied with Saul Goodman. And it's because of him that I, feel, I really got a job in the business. Mm -hmm. you know, he was he was really important. He, conductors knew him very well, and they would call him when they had openings, and he would uh, uh, he'd always say, I got the perfect person for you. He'd tell everybody that. And sort of the next guy on the list, you know, he'd recommend. <laughs> kind of strange. But, you know, you take get breaks in life, and those were a few breaks I got. Wow, that's great. So you got that pad when you were little. Uh, when did you start getting into some melodic training? Was that in was that in conjunction with the pad, or was that later? No, no, that was much later in high school. I started playing the vibes, hmm. and then I was playing with a, a little group, piano, bass, and drums. And I would take my vibes along, you know, and play a few tunes. 
I really wasn't a jazz player, you know, with all that talent of playing jazz, but I could read and I could play the, the tunes, you know, and the chords. So that's where I got into the mallet stuff. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, if you had like a takeaway from uh, studying with Goodman, uh, what would it be? Like something that's stuck in your head and you're always saying it. <laughs> yeah, first of all, it was filled with cigar smoke. He smoked a cigar. And you know, you walk in that room, it's filled with cigar smoke. You all survived it somehow. <laughs> Uh, second of all, you know, uh, we learned everything, I did, learned everything about music on the timpani. He wanted us to play the repertoire of the great symph symphonies on timpani, right? Excuse me a minute. So, so anyway, um, and he would be the kind of guy, he'd be sitting there putting the recording on, we'd be playing, and he says, give me those sticks. You know, he comes over, pushes you out of the way. This is how you do it. <laughs> He'd play it. And we would learn by watching them, you know. And of course, and he had all the energy and the character that the music's supposed to show. And so it was quite amazing. But we did also mallets and snare drum, but he mostly wanted to work on the timpani parts. And that's what we did. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. All right. Now uh, let's start talking about uh, Portraits and Rhythm, uh, which was my first introduction to you, uh, your name, that is, because I got the book in the mid 80s. My teachers like, learn these things. And I'm still, <laughs> still practicing them. Every, every time I go back, it's like, oh, really? That was there? Uh, so that's yeah. what I really like about them, because when you think you know it, and then you go back to it years later, you, you notice something new, which is really beautiful about it. So um, you started it when you were an undergrad, yes? You started writing them then? Yeah, I was about a, in my fifth of six years in Juilliard. And... Uh, you know, going to Juilliard, I had no classical background, and now studying all this classical music was all new to me. All these composers we studied and analyzed how they wrote and the way they used their chords and harmonies, and this was all new. And it was fascinating to me, <clears throat> because thinking of what I've been doing, I've been playing snare drum parts, no melodic, just rhythms. I could play the rhythms. I could sight read the rhythms. But, of course, uh, this was so different, and I... What I, I learned about music is the forms they write in, no introduction, first theme, transition, second theme, code at the end. There's like a pattern to the, most of their music. And also, <clears throat> I think I, uh, listening to their, the rhythms that they use, of course, stuck in my head. And I'm, I'm thinking, boy, you know, look at all these musical directives. We maybe had a forte and possibly an allegro, and that would have been it. We didn't have crescendo, decrescendo, retard, fermatas. It wasn't in our music. It was mostly based on the rudimental type of playing. And so I got interested in writing for the snare drum using these musical techniques, using these, uh, uh, um, not only the forms, but allegro maestoso, you know, something like that, the character. I mean, I wrote a largo for a snare drum. I don't think anybody ever wrote a Largo for snares. You know, right. was marching tempo, and that was about it. So that that's what got me interested. And I began writing, and I got down to 50 of them. And I had, I feel realized I had a book here. <laughs> so the order that they're in the book, is that the order you compose them in? Exactly, yeah. Oh. But I had a format. You know, I put a bunch of time signatures. I think I had about 13 time signatures. So I would re wouldn't repeat one until I finished, and then I... Then I started repeating them. I gotcha. Yeah. And if you, you don't realize it, but the book's in three sections, which I don't know if I actually intended that. But the first, I think, 24 or 
etudes for snare drum with the forms I just said. Then I started using the titles, ABA, Song and Trio, Sonata, you know, and all that. And then the end of the book, the third part is similar to the first, but they're a little more difficult, I think, in the end of the book. So that was a form, you know, it was sort of a pattern I had writing it. Do you still have the original manuscripts in your records? Yeah. Yeah? Oh, I, yeah, I have the original handwritten stuff that, that I did in those days. Yeah. Wow. That'd be cool to see it at some point. It'd be nice. Um, when you were doing this, did you uh, give them to anyone for feedback, or was this just totally your own thing and you hoped to get it published? It was like a secret. Well, I would bring him into Goodman. I'd ask him if I could play some of my etudes for him. You know, he had never heard him, of course. And he was very encouraging, you know. Uh, you know, Goodman never talked much about technique. You know, he, we, we played how we played. We watched him, and that's how we learned how to play. But, of course, he was big on the, the musical directives. How do you make a retard, you know, in the fermata? What do you do? So uh, my book was full of that, and so he helped a lot with me in understanding how to play those musical interpretations, you know, those directives that are in the music. Hmm. That was a big help. <clears throat> Did um did him his comments change anything for any of them or did he just kind of go that's great keep doing it or yeah he didn't particularly say much about oh the rhythms about it I mean you know he didn't comment on that it was just okay. maybe musical ideas within it okay yeah nice. um so thinking back to the sixties when you were doing this did you have any idea that this book would be such a landmark and a pillar in uh, percussion pedagogy well no of course I I had not published anything and uh, I mean I wrote this while I was still in Juilliard and I did take you know orchestration classes and, and theory and harmony classes so I knew all about this uh, but um, no I had no idea I just wrote these pieces and <clears throat> and I realized there were nothing like what I was studying all those years you know our snare drum books were very simple rhythmic books we didn't have a lot of mixed meter you know and, and even five four or six four, we had four four, three four, two four, and six eight, <laughs> and and that's about what we had. Right. So I, of course, was interested in in doing more work. I was hearing at school, you know, with the mix meter, and that was all fascinating. And of course, I incorporated all that in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, was it tough to get it published? Like, what was that journey like? Well, that that uh, <laughs> is a miracle in itself. <laughs> so. Here I am, I was about 20, what, four or five or something. I got my manuscript, my handwritten manuscript in my hand. And I, what did I call it? I called it, uh, oh, I called it Portraits in Rhythm. That's what, what I thought of the title. And so um, the first thing I did was bring it to Chapel Music because they published Goodman and Goldenberg's books, my teachers there. And I just walked into the place. I didn't have an appointment or asked to see anybody in particular. And I'm sitting there showing my book. And the guy looked through it. I don't remember too many details. And he said, it looks nice, but we have Goodman and Goldberg. We don't want to add any more percussion books. So I walked out. <laughs> I walked out of that. Then I went to uh, Paul Price, who had a store in New York, a musical store in New York. He was a composer. And he was composing a lot of the contemporary percussion things that were going on. And he liked the book, too. And he says, but uh, it'll take me about five years before I can get into it. Well, when you're 24, five years is like another lifetime. So I walked that out of there. And then I walked into Henry Adler's studio, which I knew I had taken some vibe lessons down there during my time in Juilliard. And Henry Adler was publishing his teacher's books. You know, I, I realized that. 
And so I showed it to him and he liked it. And he said he'd publish it. And he said, write me a little thing about each one. That's the old book has the words on the top, you know. And so I, I did that when I handed him the book. And he gave me a contract in two years, a two-year contract to publish the book. Wow. Well, in the meantime, I got my job in San Francisco and I moved to the West Coast. And, you know, I still didn't hear from him at that time. It wasn't that long. But all of a sudden, I get in the mail. I get in the mail. My book. I, sorry about that. I get in. I get my book in the mail. And it's published by... Bellwin Mills. I says, wow, who that's Bellwin Mills? I didn't know who Bellwin Mills was. I thought I was getting Henry Adler's, you know. Well, I called Henry. So what happens in the interim of those months? Bellwin Mills bought out his publications, all his drum publications. So now I'm with the biggest educator, music educator in the country. <laughs> and you didn't even know it. <laughs> I didn't even know it. So they published the book. And they had, in those days, this new issue, what they use this new issue when you have a new book. And in a week, that book was in 400 stores over the country because that's what they did. They new issued the book. And it basically, you know, my, I wasn't nothing and nobody. It's not that anybody knew my name on it. But, of course, the book caught on because it was so different uh, from what we had on the market. And, event, and, and it did it on its own, you know. So... That that was another break getting with Henry Adler. <laughs> you have any idea how many uh, have sold since then? Well, I can estimate it because uh, I know over the years it was selling about five thousand copies a year. Wow! Which which for us that's a, that's a lot. No, that's a big number, you know. Right. So what did it, when did it get published? I would say uh, fifty nine. 64, 63 or 64, 65, like that. No, 65, because I moved to the West Coast. So from 65 to 2000 or whatever, times five, mm -hmm. you got a couple hundred thousand books in there. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. Well, um, you know, so you, I think, well, this is easy. I want to write some more books. <laughs> Nothing ever caught on like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Lightning doesn't strike twice, I guess. Yeah. That's great, though. Right. So. Yeah. I've written some stuff over the years and I revisit it. Have you, has this uh, issue ever come up with you in the portraits and rhythm? Um, did you ever look at it and go, Hmm, maybe that measure should have been this or should I like, how, how could, how did you walk away and just go, that's it. I'm done. Like, how did you close the chapter on not refining it anymore? Well, the thing about that, uh, of course, you know, I wrote thematically. So I wrote and I had a theme, you know, eight measures or so. And then I would, do like the development of the theme. I'd rework it, add flams or something, you know. So I always had a method of what the piece was going to be like. Uh, I didn't question that so much. And the rhythms, I mean, I, I, this is now two weeks ago, okay? I'm looking at, well, actually, um, this is in, I don't know if you know about my advanced edition of Portraits and Rhythm. Yeah, I got that one. Yeah, I okay. just got it. Yeah. So, I'm teaching this. I still have some students. I'm teaching it. And there's a measure that's not right. And so I'm looking at that. Well, it was in a 5-4 time. Well, there was six beats in that measure. I never saw that before. <laughs> <laughs> but but what I realized is that was correct in the original book. But okay. when I, I transcribed them for the new book, I made a mistake. And that was I a mistake. You. But there's been mistakes. 
you know, I, I mean, proofreading your own material is really tricky because you know what it's supposed to be and your mind doesn't always see what it's looking at, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I've had to correct things over the years. Matter of fact, when Bellwin Mills published it, I didn't get to edit it at all. And they were using my manuscripts. They probably could hardly read. I wasn't a very good manuscript writer. And so there were many, many mistakes. So they let me edit the book that at that time after it was actually published. Wow. And so, you know, mystery was a mystery. It was so new to me, you know, you learn, you learn on the job. Have you, um, you started with pen and paper. Have you ever gone into the computer thing with Finale or Sibelius or any of that technology? Oh, yeah. Um, I taught at Stanford for a few years in California. And one of the uh, composers that taught there um, was developing score. Hmm. That's one that's called score. Now it's used by most of the big publishers. And uh, so he took me up and showed me how it all worked. You know, So I, I got the early version of the program, and I've been using that oh, forever. And all my books that I've published all are on score. Wow. Yeah. I'm pretty I'm pretty advanced on that, but I'm not real techie on the computer. Okay. You know, per se, but I know that program. Yeah, you know the right tool to get the job done. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you got the job out in San Francisco, uh, was this the type of gig you were hoping for uh, after completing your studies at Juilliard, or were you hoping for something else or something different? No, there's no question about studying with Saul Goodman. I studied with him for six years and at, at that time. You were preparing to be in a major orchestra. Okay. I mean, that, that's what that was all about, that studio. We all didn't get there, of course, but many of us did. And there's a story how I got it. I'll tell you my story. Right. Uh, uh, Goodman comes up to me, had a piece of paper in his hand, and he says, Joseph Cripps, who was the conductor of the San Francisco Symphony, is in town conducting the Philharmonic this week. He needs a percussionist. Here, go down to meet him at his apartment in Manhattan. This was not a do you want to question. <laughs> so I go down to New York at the time. He expected me I was coming. And big German guy, he opens the door. And I'm standing and he says, he says, so you want to play in the San Francisco Symphony? I'm shaking in my boots there. Yes, maestro. He shakes my hand. Vel shakes my hand, shuts the door. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Two weeks later, I had a contract in the mail. Wow. So it was all Saul Goodman. I mean, they knew him, and he taught Juilliard, and they, they trusted him to send them the right people. They sent He sent uh, Joseph Cripps his tip and his Roland, Go Roland Koloff uh, five years before this. So, uh, you know, Goodman came back, uh, Cripps came back to him for his percussionist. Wow. So there, there's the breaks you get in life. My gosh, uh, who knows? If that didn't happen, I don't know. I mean, I took many auditions. I auditioned for uh, it was uh, Baltimore and even the Boston. I auditioned for them over the years before this happened. Cincinnati. I was. That's what we were doing. We we're taking auditions, you know, doing our best and getting experience. Mm -hmm. So that's what it was all about with Goodman. Yeah. What was the uh, the vibe like in the section when you went out there? Was it um, just strictly professional? Was it like, did you hang out outside of the gig? Like, what, what was it like with the other percussionists in the section? Well, of course, Roland Koloff came from Goodness. He came from the same place I came from, the same school. We knew, we knew Goodness. He became my best friend, you know, because I didn't have any friends here. We got along really well together in our families. And um, he was a timpanist. And he was, in a sense, the, the section leader. There was no principal percussionist then. 
And the other people, the Lloyd Davis was there. He was playing in many years. Um, and, and Peggy Lucchese, we had a woman in the orchestra, which was quite unusual in those years. But San Francisco had its share of women. I think they started earlier. There's a story in that you might be interested in. Yeah. Taking an audition. Uh, the group, the uh, committee is behind the screen in the hall. So they can't see the stage or who's on the stage, but you, it's there. You're in the hall in the few rows there. Well, they noticed it was very easy to when it was a woman walking on stage because of shoes they wore. So, right. you know, <laughs> they, they felt they were being discriminated against. So we had to, they had to stop wearing shoes. So they had the women then not wear any shoes and walk on the stage without. But the women didn't feel comfortable without the shoes on because that's not how they played, you know. Well, eventually they had to put a rug on the stage, ah. and now everybody walked on the rug, and that settled that everybody was happy at that time. <laughs> oh, that's great! It muffled everyone's footsteps. <laughs> that's right. No, no, no. Can't tell who's uh, who's up there now. That's, and that's yeah. with the uh, the principal lack of principal at that point. How were assignments given out? Yeah, uh, Roland sort of did that, but you know the section had had a way it was set up. Uh, uh, Peggy played the bass drum mainly. I mean, you do this in your sections. You usually fall in the snare drum, uh, bass drum, cymbals, and accessories and keyboards, you know. So sometimes the, the, the principal comes in as a keyboard player. And Roland asked me, you know, if I had my choice, what I'd like to do. I said, I'd like to do the keyboard parts, you know. Um, so that's what I did when I started. Lloyd played the snare drum. Peggy played the bass drum. And Joe Sinai played the cymbals. That, that was the section. And, and Joe was, uh, he was fairly old at that time. He was retiring. I sort of got his position. He retired out, but still played extra. And we became good friends. And Joe, you know, he was uh, the old school, you know. I mean, you know, uh, he took you under his wing, you know. He'd help you out. He'd help me out, tell me about things, you know. He was trying to be a, a big help. So we, Roland was a good friend. So we got together, the three of us, kind of for lunches and stuff quite often. And uh, we all became very good friends. And uh, actually, when Joe retired, um, I got the symphony to buy his collection of cymbals, which was amazing. Wow. He had all the old K Zildjians, you know, when he started making them. And so that that's the ones I used. You know, I started, I started doing, I was doing the mallets. And then... Uh, <clears throat> Then when Jack Van Geen came in the orchestra, he was one of my former students. He was a great mallet player. So he started doing the mallets. I started doing the snare drum. And, you know, I, I wound up doing uh, all the sections. Well, it, then later I did the cymbals for many years. Uh, so, you know, you just work in the section. And we were always worked it out. And everybody was happy doing what they did. Nice. Great. Yeah. Um so uh, what are you involved with these days? You said you're teaching some students. Uh, what other stuff do you have going on musically or non-musically? Well, I'm still involved in publishing. So my latest endeavors, which the book, I can show you the cover. Great. This is, this is one book that I just finished. Oh, I think I got an email about that yesterday or something, maybe. I forget. Okay, Bach for Solo Marimba. Okay. Actually, this is... Uh, the music of Bach, his 25 of his sonatas and partitas arranged for marimba. Now, um, the, the woman who, who, who edited this, or, or they weren't on her pieces, she edited them, uh, Tammy Chen, was a former student of mine that I didn't know, but was living in the area, and she had a marimba school. 
So she would she would teach all these pieces, and and she said to me, you know, every time I teach the Bach piece, I got to go put in all my markings, my you know phrasings and everything, because Bach didn't do much in the music. He didn't tell you a lot what to do. It was no, if you you're living then, you knew how to play, you know, Baroque music. That was sort of what you knew. So Bach didn't do that. So for to play from marimba for us, it had to have all her interpretations in there. So. I, uh, she said, I have to do this one a lot. Can you engrave this piece for me? So I did. I forget which one it was, but I wrote it out as a marimba part. And I said, you know, Tammy, we should make a book out of this. <laughs> so we wound up doing 25 of them and put it in a book. And and the thing about it, I mean, now that we can talk a little bit about portraits and rhythm. Um, what what the students don't real the percussion students now today at marimba is the big thing you know before it was timpani and snare drum and we played xylophone and only the orchestral parts now it's solo marimba is a big thing but you know when they write for solo marimba today the composers do use phrasing like they would do it if they were writing for an orchestral instrument and so but that's what we never got on snare drum Nobody ever put a phrase over any lines of snare drum music. We just never saw that. And I never did it when I wrote my book either. But I realized after many years of playing that, there's a certain way I play these etudes. There's a certain way I phrase these. It's my own personal interpretation, which is what music's all about. I mean, you know, conductors, they'll conduct this symphony and another conductor will conduct that symphony, but they're not exactly the same. So... Uh, that's how why I did the advanced edition. So I have in there my idea of how to phrase those pieces. It could be done other ways, but that's the suggestion. The other thing we're not good at in uh, percussionists is knowing all the Italian terms. Now, the first one in portrait and rhythm is allegro assai. Now, when I whenever I give a clinic, I'm talking about portraits here. The first thing I ask is. How many people know what the word assai means? And usually nobody raises their hand. Allegro, they know, we know, we get the idea what allegro is. But they don't bother to look up the character word. You know, like allegro maestoso, allegro grandioso. I used all of, a lot of these in the book. And that's the character of the piece. So, uh, I, I, well, I say, okay, it means very. So very allegro which allegro sort of is, means animated also. It's not just a tempo mark. It's like animated. So very animated. So a little faster than normal. Use some a little, you know, interesting things when you play it. Don't just keep it straight like a machine gun, right? Right, right. And so we go through all of that. <clears throat> it's like, what is the number three? Is allegro maestoso. So I ask them from teaching that, do they know what maestoso means? Some people do. And some don't, you know, they're young yet, these kids. And so it means majestic. Now the question is, what do you do to make that sound majestic? Well, this takes a little bit of thinking, you know. If you had to tell a student, do this or that, do I go faster, do I go slower, louder, softer? What do you do? And that's the whole idea. And they have to come up with you know, something in their mind that describes what makes music majestic. And so if you think of the word, I think of the word as like entrance of the king, you know, that's, that would be majestic. So on the new, in the new version of my book, I put a tenuto over the first 
after that little introduction, the first, I don't know, after the first measure, the first measure or so, I put a tenuto over every note. So instead of just playing, dum, dum, da dum, dum, da dum, it's dum, dum, da dum, dum, da dum. That would be more majestic. Yeah. And now you could, we can go through the whole book and talk about most of those, you know, tempo markings that, the, that I put down as a composer. And then there's, there's other words that we find out in the score. In uh, numbers number five, I use a morendo. Hmm. Okay, what does morendo mean? You know, if you don't study Italian and you haven't played in an orchestra, you don't see these terms, but they don't bother to look them up. Right. And that's why I wrote my Cerrone's Pocket Dictionary of foreign percussion terms, <laughs> because they needed a book to look these words up for particular for them. Well, okay, it means dying away. So now, tell me, what do you do to make the music die away? And they come up and say, well, I guess you could get slower. That's correct. But then I could use a retard for that. Oh, yeah, and you can get softer. I can use a diminuendo for that. But a morendo is both getting softer and slower. Mm -hmm. And depending how dramatic you make that is, is a great character in the piece. You could just go... That, and that slows down, or you can go, you know, and a little body language. Yeah. It makes you, that's another thing about percussionists. They're like robots. <laughs> you know, we can go like machine gun through all that rhythm, but they don't move their body. And I tell them, do you ever see a violinist play? Well, they're doing this and then doing that, and they go like this, and you know, they're doing it all over the place. And we stand there like robots. So I try to teach him, you know, there's a subito pianissimo in one of my pages there. So I say, what does subito mean? Okay, they, do, they know it or they don't know it, but it means immediately. So immediately pianissimo. So then I tell him, okay, take the subito out. Now what do you do? Well, you play it pianissimo. So what do you do if it's subito? You come in early? <laughs> you can't come in early. And, you know, I, I, I thought about this for years. There's no rhyme or reason to have a subito pianissimo as far as how it's played. You're loud, then you're soft. That's what you're doing. Well, I came up, well, it's body language. Mm. You have to do something with your body to show, you know, this real fortissimo, and then you bend over. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's part of what I try to teach the kids to do, play with their body a little bit. It's like ending a piece, you know, you have to get up to get up. You're done. And they hold their hands like they're marching, you know. But you're young to get up to get up, you know, like right. that. That's character. Yeah, it's over. Yeah. And so that's that's all very important in doing the portraits. It's to show all the musical elements that are in there. And I'm having a lot of fun because I'm recording them as a project, a personal project, I'm doing one a week. And what I found is I have to use your latest edition and the other one that has all the um, the pros, the the write-ups you did for each the one. The write-up about it, yeah. Because yeah. I, I, each one, I neither one uh, checks all the boxes for me. I need to look at this one and then yeah. note here, and then <laughs> I can start to get my own interpretation after I have everything you've done. Right. And, and you should try to use your own thing, not right. just copy. You know, that that's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's so a lot that's, that's that's the fun part about music, you know, creating. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it, this is a strange question, but do you still enjoy listening to music? 
You know, I I have so many CDs I've never opened. People send me CDs. Uh -huh. I'm a big, I mean, I've written, I have over 120 published books and, and pieces. I've written all my life. I'd love to write. And that's what I spent my life doing, writing. And uh, I, 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 as a job, I listened to music, you know, 20 hours a week, rehearsals and concerts. That's all I did was listen to classical music. So I didn't go home and put on, the, the, you know, the stereos and listen to another classical piece of music. But I've had it all, but that's how, because of my, my job. I, you know, you're always listening. My, I love to listen to a, like a Mahler symphony, which we don't play most of it. Most of it's, you know, uh, without, but just to listen to what's going on and how the conductor shapes the music for the orchestra. I mean, it taught me a lot of stuff about music. Mm -hmm. All right. And then uh, one last question. If you had any advice uh, for young people watching this that want to go into the uh, music field as a career, uh, what advice could you give them? Yeah, that, that comes up a lot. I mean, I was teaching university a total of 42 years. And most of the students that came to my studio uh, usually were trained before they got there. You know, in high school, they've been playing and uh, and usually had the marching band experience. And But uh, I taught them, of course, all the classical approach to the instruments and, and playing in orchestras. And in a sense, I did what Saul Goodman did, train these students to play the great orchestral music. They had to play the timpani parts like I did. That was part of their lessons. And the snare drum excerpts and the xylophone excerpts, as they got up and I got up to seniors and graduate students, that's what I had them do. So they knew all about playing in an orchestra and what music you had to play. And they all, I think, had an idea that would be great. But there's not that many jobs for all the hundreds of, of percussions that we turn out every year. And so uh, something about, so what do you do when you graduate? You know, you have a degree in music performance. And many of them had an education degree too. They were able to get a teaching job and a lot of them went into teaching. But some of them became freelance players and subbing in this community orchestra and that one, you know, staying in the business and then starting to take auditions around the country. But you, you think of a, a, an audition, a typical audition for a major orchestra. If there's one, one percussionist opening, there could be 300 applications sent in for that one, one job. So the committee has to read through them. We have a committee that does that and extract about 60, if they can, of the best possibility most experience and stuff out of those 60 then they may send out a notice to record certain amount of music on a, on a tape you know record it of this repertoire the same repertoire then they listen to that and out of the 60 they try to get maybe 30 people or 20 people to actually come to the hall to take the preliminary audition now if you agree you buy you buy your plane ticket you get your own hotel you show up at the door when it's due. That, that's all up to you. So you do. You show up at the door and you get maybe 10 minutes to run through the first audition. And you know what the repertoire is. And, you know, you're playing that for the, for the committee and they're taking notes. If you get six out of 10 votes positive, you move to the next audition. So that was the preliminary. And then, then they have a second preliminary. Now you're down to maybe 
10 people, okay? Now the 10 people come for the final of those auditions and, or maybe out of those 10, you take three or four or five, or whatever you think is the top players. And then the conductor shows up. He hasn't been there yet. So we're telling the conductor, we think these people are qualified to be in the orchestra. Now, there are many versions of how orchestras do this, and it's changed over the years. But at that point, the conductor gets to select one, two, or none of those people. If he wants one or two of them, or three, he would have them within the next season come back and play a week with the orchestra with pay. They'll pay your way out when he's conducting or she's conducting. And, and you play the part, and so he can look at you playing in the, in the orchestra. And he'll do that for the three or how many people he chose. Then at the end of that year, um, they take a vote. You know, or the conductor, sometimes you take a vote and the conductor has 200 points, you have 100 points, it's all different how you get to the end. But the conductor usually has an edge here. We wound up letting the conductor pick whoever he wanted because we said they qualified. Now he can pick either one, and that's what he does. And then you're hired for two years on probation. So the first year is when you took the audition. The second year is when you came back and played. All these people had to play with the orchestra. The third year you're hired, and then you play for two years. So until four years have gone, you don't know you even have this job yet. Wow. <laughs> and after the first year, you can be saying, thank you very much. Or the second year is to say, thank you very much. If they hire you for the third year, you have a job for life. It's a tenure job for life. Wow. But that that's pretty difficult to do. You think about all these people that are auditioning, they're all good people. It's really tough. And so I always tell the kids, they have to have something be, besides just the music. And I, I encourage them to be a double major if they have any other interests. I mean, some are interested in, in, in science, some are interested in math, you know, just get a, get a second degree in that or education or something. Mm -hmm. And um, some do, and some don't have any other interests. That's all they want to do. And they wind up either being freelance players or, you know, playing in a smaller orchestra. And, and some have gotten big orchestras. You know, a number of students of uh, the Tempest and the Boston Symphony is one of my students. And uh, uh, San Jose Symphony, of course, in our area has been my, my students. They're living right there. They played in that for years. And, um, well, it goes on, but that, that's that's the business we're in. It's a tough business. And if you want to be successful, you have to really donate a lot of your life in the beginning here to preparing yourself to do that. Mm -hmm. It's tough. Wow. That's great advice. You started so early. Would there have been any other uh, field you would have been interested in, you think, if you didn't do music? Yeah. So um, when I graduated high school, you know, uh, I didn't know if I was going to get into Juilliard or not. And I thought, oh, I'll go to Montclair State Teachers College. That's what I would have done. And I probably would have been a music teacher. Mm. But, of course, I didn't have to do that because I, I got into Juilliard and spent six years there. And there was no question what I was being trained for. And then having Goodman recommending, you know, it was perfect setup. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, you got to get a few breaks in life. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, you got to take them when you get them. Sometimes, you know, if I didn't go study with this fellow from Passaic, you know, go on the bus, I right. wouldn't have ever gotten to Julia, right? You know, yeah. so Incredible. anyway, it's, well, it's a great profession. You know, there's nothing like making a living doing what you love to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's can't be anything much better than that. Right. Yeah.
So let me tell you my latest project. Okay, go ahead. My latest project is for marim solo marimba. It's called Selections from the Greatest Music Ever Written. In other words, how many of these students are ever going to play a Mahler symphony, really? You know, the, the, most of the community orchestras don't play them, that level of the symphony. So they don't hear much of this music, and there's such great music out there. So I, pit, I picked about, oh, in my eight or ten pieces, I've... Sometimes it's the whole movement. Sometimes it's part of a movement. Like, for instance, the last one I'm doing is the Brahms Lullaby from his first symphony. Just that, and they arrange it for solo marimba. Wow. So they're playing this great music, which, you know, you just, you don't forget it. It's just, and so anyway, that's my project right now. Oh, that's beautiful. I can't wait to see when that comes to uh, fruition. And if I then if I don't think of another project, I'm going to get depressed. <laughs> I've been doing all this all my years. Get up in the morning, I got to have a project, you know, that kind of thing. Uh huh. Anyway, it's fun. All right. Well, thank you uh, for the uh, decades of inspiration from your uh, book and all the other publications also. And mm -hmm. uh, thanks for taking the time to do the interview. I really uh, am honored to have had the chance to speak with you. You're welcome. Thanks for checking out this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. For more great interviews like this, please visit my website, www.seanjkennedy.com, and click the podcast tab. And in conjunction with this video, please jump over to my YouTube channel and check out my progress as I record all 50 of Mr. Cerrone's etudes from his book, Portraits in Rhythm.